Uh, let me ask you a question to start our time this morning. Show of hands, how many of you have ever had a dream where you were falling? Have you ever had a dream where you were falling? This is going to require you to be a little bit braver. How many of you have ever had a dream where you were about to give a presentation or you were in school or you were pushing a shopping cart in the supermarket and you suddenly and inexplicably discovered you were naked? Show of hands. Come on, State Road. Yeah, all right. Yeah, it's a risky exercise. I get it. Onerologists. That was a new term to me this week. I had to look it up. They are scientists who study dreams. And they have studied, it's a subdiscipline of psychology, and they've developed classifications for the different kinds of dreams that people tend to experience. And over and against our random sampling here this morning, uh, they would say that some dreams are universal. In other words, if you're a human being and you dream and you tend to remember your dreams, you've had the experience that I just described. Not only that, but universal dreams are dreams that are, occur in people across cultures. Uh, tonight, when people fall asleep in China or Aroostook County, Maine, or wherever, they're going to dream of falling and discovering they don't have clothes on, and it's weird. And it happens all around the globe. And it's happened down through history. Every developmental stage of humanity, children and adults, all seem to get these dreams. It's interesting. If we go back into ancient literature, there are written accounts of people dreaming that they suddenly did not have clothes on, or they're falling from a great height, or their teeth falling out. I don't know why that's a universal dream, but it appears to be. Now, I am not an onerologist. I repeat, I am not an onerologist. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I am not that. I don't even play one on TV, and I am absolutely not qualified to explain why people dream the things that they do. I really should stay in my lane as a Bible teacher. But although I don't have the chops to psychoanalyze your dreams or explain why we have the dreams that we do, I do wonder, and this is just my private wondering mind, and not a diagno diagnosis or anything, but I do wonder if all of humanity is processing in our collective fallen consciousness that time when we fell to our death and discovered we were naked. All dreaming is downstream of a one singular event. And I do wonder, I wonder about, I wonder if these dreams are so universally true for human beings that we, in the middle of the night, have these nightmares about falling and about being found naked. <laughs> Is that all because of the fall? I don't know that, but I wonder. In the third chapter of Genesis, we find the story of man's fall, a horrific misstep that sent us hurtling down, down, down towards certain death. And like a bad dream, the first symptom of the fall that Adam and Eve experienced was a sudden, scary realization that they were exposed. They were naked. 
Let's read about it together. We find it in Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It's a fairly lengthy portion of Scripture. Follow along with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And then this is very important, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Uh, between now and mid-July, we're going to be spending each Sunday in a passage of Scripture that focuses, kind of centers around an article of clothing. And I wanted to do this sermon series because I myself am something of a fashion icon. Right? I know. I have pioneered the khaki and button-down shirt look. Uh, before I came along, you guys were all slobs. No, no, I'm not a fashion icon. I, I don't uh, have any credentials there at all. But I do find it interesting 
um, as we're going to talk about, clothing plays a surprisingly central role, uh, at least in the unfolding of it, the sim- symbolism of God's plan to redeem fallen humanity. We are all living between fig leaves and robes of righteousness. And in between, there's lots of stories where God uses clothing to illustrate his plan to redeem fallen humanity, to demonstrate his power, and to talk about who he is as the God who clothes, who clothes us in his royal robes. It's an amazing story that we're living in. Before we dive in, though, here and talk about fig leaves and animal skins, I do find it interesting to note the three questions that God asks. He's walking in the garden, and he, he's, of course, all-knowing God. He knows where Adam and Eve are, but he asks these questions, I think, more to make points than because he needs information. His first question is, where are you? What a horrifying question in light of all we know about what has happened in this moment. It's a horrifying question because it implies separation, alienation, a loss of contact. Where are you? Those those three words fall on our ears with the horrifying weight of like a guns report or something. Something violent is happening, something terrible. Where are you? This question speaks to the lost condition of humanity, like children who have wandered away from their parents. They were not where they were supposed to be. They were lost. Where are you? The second question in verse 10 is, who told you that you were naked? The question, who told you, I think, speaks to the loss of God as a proper authority in their minds. Really, could be said, Who have you been listening to and following instead of me? Who told you? And third, God asks in verse 13, what is it that you have done? And this, of course, speaks to the lost behavior of mankind. So mankind is lost in their state. They're separated, alienated. They've walked away from God's word as holding a place of authority in their minds. They're listening to somebody else. And this translates into a loss of purity in their physical behavior. God's three questions point out these three things. And this passage is also the very first instance in the Bible where clothing is ever mentioned. This is the very first instance of clothing in the history of the world. And looking at all your finery today, it all began with something like this. Jen Whitaker brought this from her. It's some kind of fig. I don't know exactly what. It's probably not the figs that grow on farms. But I believe this fig plant first found its origins in Joel and Elizabeth Whitaker's house, and then it came to Jennifer Whitaker's house, and now I've got it here. But it's a lovely big leaf, and you could see how if you were panicked, you had to hide yourself. (laughs) You're casting about. I mean, I would choose a burdock leaf maybe. But this is maybe what they had at hand. They weren't in Arista County, so they grabbed a fig leaf, and it would do the job to a point. But clothing, this is the very first place where clothing is ever mentioned in the history of the world. This is the birth of clothes. And as I said, clothing holds this surprisingly prominent place in the story of God's plan to redeem fallen humanity. I think the act of getting dressed is a daily ritual that most of us think very little about. 
I certainly do not often reflect on the spiritual significance of clothes wearing. At the first, Adam and Eve, we are told at the tail end of Genesis 2, they were naked and they were not ashamed in their garden home. But then they ate the forbidden fruit, and the very first symptom of the fall that we are noted in the Bible is that they suddenly realized they didn't have clothes on. And this awoke within them feelings of fear. And they famously, or rather infamously, tried to hide their nakedness by sewing together fig leaves into some kind of a crude garment. And this would be the first of many inadequate attempts on the part of human beings to provide for themselves in their own power, their own striving, a covering for their sin. The story that we are all living in, again, is bookended between fig leaves and the robes of righteousness. And in the pages in between, God features all these other little stories. We're going to be spending time in them that center around articles of clothing. But as we come away from Genesis 3, please see this. Before the fall, in the perfect sinless state of the garden, before they ate of the forbidden tree, Adam and Eve required no covering. They were naked and they were not ashamed. After breaking God's law, they became conscious of a need for a covering. And they began, they took their first stab at attempting to provide a suitable covering for themselves. But in the end, as we read in verse 21, it was God who provided a covering for them, and he did that by sacrificing another creature to cover for them. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Guys, we are all naked and exposed before the Lord. We are all without a covering. We're desperately in need of a covering. And God has sacrificed another to provide you with a covering. That's the story of Christianity. That's the gospel that Jesus died for us, providing for us this covering. The first garment ever made by human beings was pretty crude, born probably of panicked expediency. God was walking in the garden. Adam and Eve were naked, and in desperation they cast about for anything that they might use to cover themselves up. Incidentally, this idea of clothing as a covering, I think, gets closest to the spiritual meaning of clothing. The Hebrew word for atonement, kafar, means a covering. And right from the beginning, the clothing was representative of a justification and a needed covering to cover our sinfulness, our shameful Exposure, exposure, I guess, for lack of a better word. Consider with me the following passages. This is Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. There's many passages. I could have filled a lot of pages with examples of this. I'll provide two that I think illustrate the point that the Bible makes over and over and over again, that clothing equals a necessary covering. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, we read this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Matthew two eleven through 14, it says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In both of these instances, what's needed is to have a covering that made them right in the, in the setting that they were in. The problem is, is that our sin, not only our sins that we commit, but the original sins of Adam and Eve were tainted even at birth with those sins which we inherited from our ancestors, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, have made us unfit to be in the presence of God. He is holy, holy, holy. And so God, in His grace and in His mercy, has provided for us a covering, a justification that makes us fit. We are given the royal robes of Jesus to cover our shameful, sinful nakedness. This is what's needed. And that's a, that's a once-for-all act, by the way. Uh, we talk about it a lot, but there are these two big words in Christianity, justification and sanctification. Justification is this once-for-all act by which we're made right. It's a legal term. It's not guilty. And then begins the process of sanctification. Justification is a singular act, a decisive moment, while as sanctification is a process by which we begin to become like the God who saved us. So in justification, we're declared not guilty, even though we are very much guilty, and that's done because all of our guilt has been transferred to Jesus. That's the covering. We're given his perfect righteousness as a covering for our sin. And then, for all people who have truly embraced that, we then enter into this process of sanctification by which we do truly become more and more like Jesus. Not perfectly, but sincerely over time, that's, that's what we are moving towards. The spiritual meaning of clothing is closely tied to this idea of a covering. After they broke God's law and fell from grace, Adam and Eve became suddenly and terribly aware, like they were living in one of those universal dreams, which a couple of us have experienced here at State Road. Only it wasn't a dream, it was terrifyingly real, that they were shamefully exposed. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Their sins, their failures, the inner perversity of their hearts, all of it was visible to God. They needed to be justified. They needed somehow to be declared not guilty. They needed an atonement. They needed a covering. However, I'm sure that none of those words or concepts occurred to them in that moment. I get the sense when I read Genesis 3 that their reaction to God walking in the garden was something more animal-like than thoughtful or philosophical. 
Kind of like how a cockroach scurries somewhere dark and hidden when you turn on the light. I think this was their sin-addled reaction to the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. It was just to scurry, run, hide. I don't think they would have broke it down theologically. It was just terrifying to them that the holy was walking around and were naked. He could see us. But here's the amazing thing about our God and this story that we are privileged to be living in. Even though every fiber of Adam and Eve's being prompted them to run and hide from God, it was God who came looking for them. God pursued them, sought them out. And even here, immediately following man's rebellion, God's judgments are tinged with mercy, and we see the first emergence of grace. In this uh, kind of veiled language about how the, the children of Eve would one day, and the serpent would bite the heel, but going to bruise the head. The heel, if you take an injury, like when I remember I used to have an uncle, and if I would fall down and get injured, he would say, oh, it's a long way from your head, or a long way from your heart. <laughs> you know, if I was bleeding on my leg, he would say, ah, oh, it's a long way from any place vital, is what he was saying. And so if the serpent bites a child's heel, you know, that's, and then the child stomps out the snake's head, assuming it's not a venomous snake or something like that. Let's not get lost in the analogy. But what the analogy there is saying is, is an injury to the heel is not as serious and existential a threat as an injury to the head, right? If I took a baseball bat and whacked your heel, that's different than if I whacked your head. And that's what's being portrayed in this language in Genesis 3 is, yeah, you're going to bite the heel, but that child's going to stomp your head in. 100%. This is the first emergence, I think, of the pro prophetic language surrounding a coming deliverer who would be descended from Eve through Mary, son of man, one of us, born of human beings who would stomp out the head of the serpent, Satan. And here's the amazing thing. It is tinged. Even in this moment of rebellion, God shows up with mercy and grace. In Isaiah 64, 6, we read these words. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some versions would say all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And then he says, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Just as Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness with leaves, human beings sometimes try to cover through their, their, their sin through law-keeping or do-goodism or church attendance or by giving money towards some worthy cause. And none of this covers sin. None of it does. It is an unsubstantial and inadequate fig leaf. There is only one covering that will do, and that is that which has been crafted by God, and that is Jesus. Verse 21 tells us that God clothed them in animal skins. He took the life of another, an animal, to cover their shame, 
And in like manner, God has provided a covering for us through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, our sins are forgiven and our guilt is removed. Uh, we experience a glorious freedom. And the fear that Adam and Eve at the thought of coming face to face with God in their nakedness begins to lose its grip on our hearts. You know, in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. And in embracing the gospel, although I still wear clothing, um, in God's presence, I am once again naked and not ashamed. Have you ever thought about this? Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. I can come to God. I don't have to hide. I don't have to cover up. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to play act. I can be completely, completely vulnerable and honest with my God and unashamed because it's all forgiven. And that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. We are recapturing Eden. We are recapturing the state of unashamed in the presence of God, complete, even though we are known completely when we embrace the gospel, because our standing before God is not rooted in our perfection, our goodness. It's rooted in the perfection and goodness of Jesus. It's rooted in our covering for our sin, that is Jesus. And it's a really, it's a sad thing when human beings reject that and instead throw all their efforts into crafting fig leaf garments that, that shrivel up and that fail to do an adequate job. And they are trying to earn, to cover up their sin through some striving when God has provided a covering that works perfectly and permanently. And so that's a particularly tragic thing when human beings reject the sin covering that God has provided and instead pour so much time and energy and resources into trying to cover themselves up in other ways. I want you to experience that glorious freedom, and that's why we so often preach about the gospel here at State Road. And because of this love that God has shown us, he has provided a way back to him. All of our human inventions to provide a covering have failed, but through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been provided with a covering that was fashioned by God, not human hands. And we receive this reconciliation through trusting in what, has, what he has provided. <coughs> in Romans 10, it says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Naked and unashamed. Our sin and the accompanying guilt, shame, and fear can make us want to hide from God. But we have a king who comes to seek us out, to save us, to pursue us. That's the kind of God he is. When we wanted nothing to do with him, when we were hiding and running, 
He was pursuing us. We are saved because of his generous kindness, his love, his grace, his coming to us. And when we put our faith in this seeking Savior, we'll never be put to shame. Uh, we're going to close out our service here this morning with communion. Uh, one of the things uh, about communion is it's, uh, it's symbolic in its representation. Uh, the, the bread represents the body of Christ, and the cup represents his spilled blood. In Hebrews 9.22, again, thinking about the inadequacy of the fig leaves as compared to the skins that God provided and fashioned a garment from. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin cannot be swept under the rug. It has to be paid for. And so here in the very beginning, the way that God covered their sin was through the shedding of blood, through a sacrificial offering, as it were. And so we see the precursor of the sacrifice which has made us right, by which we are purified, the shedding of the blood of the perfect lamb. In Matthew 26, 27 through 28, Jesus said this. He was in that first time that they ever observed communion together. It says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It was Jesus' intent that the cup at the Lord's Supper would serve as a vivid reminder that his blood, his life, was poured out for us. And this helps to impress on us the reality of the enormous price that was necessary to provide a covering for our sins, the death of the Son of God. Uh, I, I, earlier I told you I was not a fashion, I actually said I was a fashion icon, I lied, but I'm actually not. And in fact, I don't, I know, surprise. Right? And in fact, I don't pay much attention to the world of fashion. That's actually less surprising to you, I'm sure. Uh, I have never watched a red carpet gala, but I have either somehow flipping through the channels or seen it mocked somewhere. I don't know. I've heard that question asked, who are you wearing? You guys ever hear about that? Who are you wearing? I thought about that as a, as a title for our series, but I went with covered instead. But who are you wearing? Uh, when we come to the Bible, and we are told uh, in many places about the way that Jesus provides a covering for us. Isaiah 61 says that he clothes us in robes of righteousness. Really, the question is, as we come to the table, is who are you wearing? Are you wearing filthy rags made of human striving, fig leaves sewn together out of panicked expediency? You know someday you're going to stand face to face with the living God. You know in that moment all your sin will be known to the one who is holy, 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 and you feel that cockroachy desire to scurry and hide. He is a bright, blinding light of holiness, and you are stained. You're exposed. you got to cover up. And in that moment, <laughs> who are you wearing I don't know if God will ask that. I sure hope not. But it's a fitting question. Am I wearing Jesus? 
Am I covered in his perfect righteousness? Are his royal robes draped over me as a covering? Am I made legitimate? Am I vindicated, justified by wearing him? 